Addressing Stigma in the Treatment of Substance Abuse Disorder. We'll talk about that next on Locked On Pharmacy. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. You are listening to the Locked On Pharmacy Podcast, the insider's view into the world of pharmacy. Hello, this is Frank Fortin from the American Pharmacists Association. Stigma is often based on myth, superstition, or prejudice against another group. These beliefs, not based on fact or evidence, often lead to a negative impact on mental health, and it's especially seen in patients with substance abuse disorder. During COVID, the opioid epidemic has continued to rage through America, making it imperative that pharmacists and other healthcare providers go the extra mile to be conscious of how stigma hinders the treatment of those suffering from this disorder. We've asked Thomas Franco to join us on Locked on Pharmacy to talk about this. Dr. Franco is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He is also the coordinator of the APHA Special Interest Group devoted to issues of pain, palliative care, and addiction. Dr. Franco, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Real happy to be here. Let's start with the context of this issue, the numbers. Where does the nation stand in terms of the impact of this epidemic today? Right now, the numbers are heading in what we would all consider to be the wrong direction. Um, When we look at the numbers between April 2020 and April 2021, that 12-month period, there were over 100,000 drug-related overdose deaths. Uh, And that's the first time it's crested 100,000 ever. When we further break that down, we see that the number of people that died as a result of fentanyl uh, was more than the total number of people that died from a drug-related overdose in 2016. So we can see that that 12-month period, and, and presumably it would get worse uh, when we look at future 12 months, uh, that, that's, that's highly concerning. So it really is a different kind of epidemic now. It's not so much focused on called the prescription medications. Are prescription opioids still something that need to be used judiciously and appropriately? Yes, they do. They they always had been. It wasn't like magically rules changed. But what we're looking at now, because we see the prescribing rates are the lowest, not the lowest, but they are lower than what they have been. We see now that it's more of a tainted supply of non-prescription opioids primarily sourced around fentanyl. So many things that people buy off of the street or or however they get it, not from a pharmacy. There's no good manufacturing practice. There's no FDA for that. So they get what they think might be heroin or cocaine or anything. And it turns out half the time it's fentanyl. And that's where we're seeing a lot of issues right now. So prescription, yeah, it's still there. But this is becoming a more holistic substance use uh, disorder condition rather than just an opioid use disorder condition. And how does that change things, especially from a pharmacist's point of view? Well, when we look at treatment, 
that the treatment options that we have for purposes of maintenance of recovery are primarily focused around opioids and alcohol. Uh, and we'll throw nicotine in there as well, since nicotine kills more people by light years than, than, than uh, any, anything else, substance use related wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see that those three substances have effective treatment options. When we look at things like cocaine, crystal meth, which we see on the rise as well, there's not a medication out there that we can use. We are really reliant on behavioral modification, uh, therapy, things along those lines. Not saying that those things are not incredibly necessary for conditions where we have medication. It's just that we only have those types of options for more of these, what we'll call it non-opioid, non-alcohol, non-nicotine based substance use disorders. What have we learned about treating addiction in the years since this, as well as other addiction issues became top tier, became a national epidemic? Probably the best thing that we've learned is that it can be done. Uh, the, The science behind substance use disorder has really grown dramatically over the last, we'll call it 20 years, that the notion of addiction being a choice is is no longer held. I mean, people are, of course, entitled to your opinion, but the fact of the matter is we now know, we can show that this is a disease, it's a mental health condition. So I think that was the biggest step, was changing it from a problem associated with the criminal justice system and turning it into a condition under the purview of the healthcare system. The other thing that we realized was that the treatment options we have are incredibly effective. When we look at the evidence around medications like buprenorphine, buprenorphine has way better evidence than people going with an abstinence-based, so not any medications at all. There's more evidence to show that people are staying out of jail, maintaining a job, caring for family, being with their kids, all the things that when people are not on this medication, have a, when people who are not on that medication, they have a higher likelihood of having issues. I don't want to diminish people who have successfully entered and maintained their recovery without these medications. That is not saying that it was an easier path or they're in any way stronger. It's my hat is off to you. You found recovery in your way. But when we look at the totality of the data, we see that those treatment options tend to have more favorable outcomes. How widely, how widely used are these medications today? I would say not widely used enough. So why not? Well, there's a few things that we could look at and a few things that the data points us to. Um, the three major medications that are utilized for opioid use disorder are methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Now, naltrexone, no one really gets up in arms about because it's a full antagonist. And there are pharmacists across the country that have made full-time jobs out of running intramuscular naltrexone programs. Um, And that's great that it's a medication that provides help to people both with opioid and alcohol use disorder, and it's a phenomenal drug. And if that's what somebody feels works for them, great. The other two are where we run more into issues. Methadone, which has been around forever, uh, the, the issue with methadone is that it has to be dispensed from a federally licensed methadone clinic. It's not under the purview of the states. So there's not a lot of them to go around. 
And it makes people go to this place every day, which means they need transportation, time off from work in order to do this. And it becomes too much of a hassle for people to do it. And it's financially, it's difficult for a lot of these places to stay open, especially after the last you know, year, year and a half, almost two years. So there's some advocacy efforts going on right now to try to get methadone for purposes of maintenance of recovery to be able to be dispensed by pharmacies. Now, we'll see how that legislation goes, uh, but we know that that's something that we're currently advocating for. When we look at buprenorphine, there's still a, a tremendous amount of stigma around buprenorphine. There's fear of, of, it's not really taught a lot in a lot of pharmacy programs. It's, it's touched upon, but it's not delved into the, the same level as, say, diabetes or anticoagulation or asthma. There's also fear of retribution, uh, prosecution from law enforcement, uh, be it state, local, federal. Uh, there are several reports of pharmacies being hit with DEA, uh, we'll call it cr criminal sanctions, uh, but in reality, they were doing the right thing and judges found in their favor, but those court costs shut pharmacies down. Right. So a lot of pharmacists are hesitant about uh, stocking it and dispensing it. So there's a lot of misnomer, misconception, fear around these medications. And once we start getting information out there about their safety, and yes, we need to be careful with them, like should we do with blood pressure medicines or we do with warfarin. We have to be careful with those meds where people could get hurt. It's the same thing here, but we know that by denying people these medications, we could potentially be increasing the risk that they fall back into their addictions or worse, if they happen to get a tainted supply of something off the street. The stigma issue sounds like it's a, almost a 360 degree kind of thing. Some of it's a little bit on the, on, on the side of the pharmacy. Some of it might be the patient. Some of it might be law enforcement authorities. How do you crack that? As a team? Yeah. Be the best way of doing it. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Marvel. And uh, when we look at the Avengers, it's <laughs> how did we win all these things? We did it as a team. That's how we beat Thanos. We have to look at this from a multifaceted perspective. Yeah, the crux of it is education, and it's not education in the notion of go to go to school or, or classroom type stuff. It's education around social change. And we'll just look at the last 20 years when we see the things socially that in, say, the 80s or 90s were considered immensely taboo and now are totally okay. And it's, well, they were always totally okay. It's just that society had to catch up. And we're at a point now where we need to start changing the mindset on this. Now, we started to do that. There's more acceptance of substance use disorder as a disease, that treatment is out there, and that it's not a sign of weakness, but we still got a long road ahead of us. So we need to educate healthcare that don't be afraid of this condition. It just requires a slightly different approach than managing something a little bit more objective. It's a subjective condition, just like depression and anxiety are subjective. We have to educate law enforcement that we're the, the notion of the war on drugs and just say no is just short-sighted and ineffective. If the war on drugs worked, we why are we in the situation we're in? The war on drugs clearly did not work. Uh, and it costs a ton of money and a ton of lives. 
we need to educate law enforcement that there are better methods than putting somebody in jail. And a lot of law enforcement personnel are agreeing with this. And there's a lot of uh, you know, uh, arrest deterrent programs, drug court, and several other uh, facets within the criminal justice system that are turning more towards treatment than towards jail. And that's a, a great step forward. Uh, and then as far as public and patients goes, you see it all the time. Uh, these people don't deserve anything. How come insulin isn't free? And I just got done talking with some people about this this morning that just, just because somebody else gets something doesn't mean that that person should be denied it because nobody else has it. So we were talking about a safe injection facility that opened in New York City. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you saw this. Uh, I saw it about a week or so ago. And the notion was, why is it fair that somebody who has an addiction can go to this place where they have help and naloxone and treatment and psychology and harm reduction all there, and people have to dump out oceans of money for insulin? And my answer is, you're right. It's not fair that people have to dump out oceans of money for insulin. But that shouldn't mean that the other people shouldn't be able to have access to treatment. That's just silly. We should be asking ourselves, what can we do to replicate this model for other disease states? And the more we talk about it, and the more we relate it to, it is another healthcare condition that unfortunately has social symptoms. It, it makes people do things that they don't want to do. I'm not trying to condone their behavior in any way. But once we understand that, we can get that information out there. Are we going to change everybody's mind? No. Look at vaccines. We're never going to convince everybody to get one. But we can try to convince more and more people. And just as society has changed over the last you know, X number of years regarding various social issues, we could look back 20 years from now and say, whoa, look how far we've come along for this. And if that um, probably applies to something as as you mentioned, safe injection sites, which is a, which is a newer concept than, than some of the other uh, treat, treatment options, but, and probably has a longer way to go in acceptance, I would imagine, so. <laughs> First thing we gotta do is we gotta make sure that it's legal. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, right. a, it's in a very precarious zone right now, but that's a whole separate conversation. So let's get to pharmacy here for, for now. Uh, now. Um, so and as, a, as frontline uh, patient care providers, pharmacists um, deal with this uh, regularly, um, sometimes in some areas, even routinely. What can, what can pharmacists do to address the stigma and some of the barriers that still exist to medication-assisted treatment like the ones you've described? You know, I think the first thing that we should do is we need to fix the problems. And I don't say problem, that's a bad word. I don't, we should fix the uh, stigma within our own house. That's the first thing we need to do. This is one of those united front situations. And when I say our own house, it's yes, within the profession, because much like everywhere, people have opinions on things and that's perfectly okay. But more impressively, it's our own houses in our own individual pharmacies, whether it's a community pharmacy, a hospital, wherever, because you have other pharmacists that you work with, you have technicians, you may have students, and if everybody in that pharmacy shares in the same thought process and carries the same ideals, then no matter whom that patient interacts with, because, I mean, let's be real, when patients go to the pharmacy, they primarily interact with the pharmacy technician. Right. So then the pharmacist. And if that pharmacy technician is giving off 
the, the stigma and the vibe, that's, that could put a, a lot of negative pressure and shame onto the patient. So we fix the situation within the own house. And that starts with quality leadership from the pharmacist to demonstrate appropriate terminology, appropriate outlook, evidence-based medicine towards this condition. And the more that the, the leadership takes care of it, it will bleed down to everybody. Once we get it kind of done within our own house, we then look and say, okay, how can we start getting this information out there? And until such a point that pharmacists get the ability to manage some of these medications in collaboration with, with physicians or other prescribers, which one day should happen, there's evidence to show that that's effective. What we can do is we can be a conduit of care rather than a barrier to care. So instead of somebody saying, instead of saying, oh, we don't stock that, or oh, we don't have any. Uh, and I don't mean to have a negative connotation behind it, but those are ways that people can get turned away. So you, we can do things like always ensuring we have buprenorphine in stock, always assuring we have naloxone in stock, have information on where the local methadone program is, have information on where local AA, NA, Al-Anon, 12-step programs are, contact information for treatment centers, information on where all the data waived, well, we, we kind of don't need that now, but mostly data wave physicians are located in your community. And it doesn't have to be a big bulletin board. It could just be a little stand off to the side with pamphlets that are literature in it. We realize that the biggest reason people don't seek help is they don't know where to go to seek help. But mm. with 90% of the population living within five miles of a community pharmacy, that could be their first place to go to figure out what the next step should be. You've done some work around the kind of conversations with the language and the conversations to have with patients. Can you um, review some of that with us here? Yeah, well, there's been several agencies from APHA to Office of National Drug Control Policy, CPNP, and several others that have put out recommended terminology to help decrease stigma and shame associated with substance use disorder. Uh, so those would be things like we no longer want to say addict or junkie. We would rather say person with substance use disorder. And that also means the colloquial, like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a chocoholic. Or, you know, I said I like Marvel. I'm a Marvel junkie. That's, you, that's still putting that negative term out there. We don't want to do that. And, and we as a society have been able to successfully do that with other terms. Again, that's social change that we've had in the past. We've been able to look at things that at one point in time, socially, even though they were still not right, but socially they were considered okay, and now we understand that they're not, and society is caught up. This is just another example. Uh, another one we have is, you know, kicked the habit. We, we don't want to say you kicked the habit because it makes it sound like it was a choice. You entered recovery. Uh, it's, not a clean, it's not a clean needle or a dirty needle. It's a sterile or non-sterile. Or uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, you popped a dirty urine. And it's like, well, what, what does that mean? You popped a dirty urine? A, one urine, urine doesn't pop. If it does, that's probably an issue. Uh, and, and two, how is it dirty? Uh, it's positive or negative. The bigger one we see is overdose, and it's under the purview of patient counseling. Not so much in terms of a diagnosis, but let's put it into this example. We all remember the three prime questions when we were in school, how we were taught, what is it for, what you're told to expect, how you're told to take it. If we go to someone who's picking up a, an opioid, let's say they're picking up some morphine, and we say, now, 
in case you overdose, there's this medication called naloxone and it's there to help you. Now hear how it sounds, in case you overdose, it's your fault. Now, if you have an addiction that can build shame and if you don't, it makes you feel labeled. So the recommended phrase for overdose now is bad reaction, opioid-induced respiratory depression, or breathing emergency. I know it's, it's a lot, but let's put it into the purview. There's medication called morphine. This medication may cause a bad reaction wherein you have difficulty or you may even stop breathing. There's a medication called naloxone, which is out there, which can help reverse that. Would you like to learn more? And you can hear how that's different. Because now it's the medication may cause this to happen rather than you, the person, may cause this to happen. And it's hard because we've been saying it's in package inserts. It's in our education. It's built into us to say this. And it's just part of that culture change that we need to have. But I know that the more and more we do it, it starts to bleed around. We've been doing it here locally. Uh, with our students and with, with providers in the area. And I'm starting to hear people say opioid-induced respiratory depression rather than overdose. And that's great. That means that we're starting to make social change. So the more of us that do that, the better off it's going to be for the entire society going forward. So what, what are the one or two parting thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with on this topic? Honestly, I think the first one is don't be afraid of this. There's, uh, we don't understand it, and, and a, lot of pa- a lot of providers, uh, patients too, but providers don't understand substance use disorder. And naturally, as people, we are afraid of that which we do not understand. There's not much to be afraid of with this. There's something to be afraid of with every condition because we have to be careful. We have somebody's life in our hands. But the abundant fear that is out there need not be there. When we look at managing these medications, such as buprenorphine, it is way safer to manage buprenorphine than it is to manage insulin or warfarin. Hmm. You make one mistake with insulin or warfarin, people, people die. It, buprenorphine has a plateau effect. Respiratory depression isn't there. If they're using it for recovery, the euphoria isn't there. It allows people to maintain a normal life. So one would be don't be afraid of it. Embrace it because you're going to see this stuff. It's not going away. Hundreds, some thousand people died. How many more people have it? How many more people didn't have access to care? This is an area where pharmacists can make a huge impact, especially in rural parts of the country or in at-risk neighborhoods. So that's one. And two is if you can't get, if, if for some reason you can't feel like it can get involved, like this is great. I love what I'm hearing. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid on this, but I don't know how to do it. I'm just me. I'm just, I'm just this person. I'm a, I'm a person. Well, there's a lot you can do. Uh, one. All those harm reduction efforts, stock buprenorphine, stock and talk about naloxone to everybody. It's in the labeling for every C2 now. Uh, have information about treatment, AA, 12-step, available. And you can find it online. It's all easy to find. And be an advocate. Uh, it's when you hear something that's wrong, especially in your own pharmacy, amongst your staff, that's an opportunity to be a leader. That's an opportunity to exercise quality leadership, take ownership of your staff, and demonstrate what it should look like. I think those are the two low-hanging fruit, we'll call it, that we can start doing right now. You could, you could end listening here and immediately go and do it. And those are things that we could do to try to help make that social change happen. And sooner or later, if you haven't dealt with it before, you will at some point, because there's really no area of the country that's untouched by this. 
Yep, I tell every student in class that it's not a matter of where can I go to get away from it? It's a matter of what am I going to do when I see it? Hmm. You're going to see it. We are all going to see it. Now, nobody, and nobody's perfect. That's part of the condition. And we're all people. We're not perfect. It's how can we address it for when we see it, we recognize it, and we can act on it. That sounds like a good place to end. Tom Franco, thank you very much for joining us on Locked on Pharmacy. Thanks so much for having me. This is your host, Frank Fortin. On behalf of APHA, thank you for joining us. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Pharmacists Association, the largest professional association of pharmacists in the United States.